Well, as another school year comes to a close, those who are seniors are figuring out what the next season of life looks like for them. Some are graduating from high school or college, and they're going to be joining the military to serve our country. Others are moving into the work world as they're beginning their careers. Still others are looking at uh, what the next uh, set of school will look like for them. My daughter, Sarah, is finishing uh, high school, and she's been looking at colleges, and she's had uh, a lot of great opportunities. There are wonderful schools here in San Antonio that she looked at, uh, another school that was near and dear to our heart that her mom and I went to. She had the opportunity to go there, but she chose a little junior college in College Station. <laughs> so uh, my fingers are burning as I hold that sign. I'm raising them right. <laughs> Now, I'm actually very proud of my Texas Aggie daughter, so uh, she's going to be going to Texas A&M. Now, what that means in Texas terms, as you all know, is that we have become a house that is divided, <laughs> and, uh, but it says our hearts stay united. So, you know, whether it, it's sports or school, something like that, we can have fun with, but when it comes to the spiritual realm, uh, we can't be a house that's divided. The Bible is very clear that we have to choose between the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh, or the counterfeit gods of the world. In fact, as you read the book of Joshua, you see that when Joshua was the commander of the army of Israel, as they entered into the promised land, Joshua said in 24:15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. What we're going to see is that Jesus tells us, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I invite you to look with me as we begin reading in Luke eleven fourteen through 20. It says, And Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And when the demon had gone out of the mute man, had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to him, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself fails. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now this name Beelzebub is a combined set of two words. One is Baal, which was the chief Canaanite, Canaanite deity, and the other Zebel means prince. So the name literally means prince of Baal. It was speaking of uh, this, this chief god in the pagan world. Uh, it was used all the way back in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2. There it spoke of the god of Ekron, and it had the meaning of Lord of the Dwelling. And this came to be used for Satan because it spoke of all that was incarnate in evil is manifest in Satan. And so this, this became one of his many names. Now, the Jews had a way of subtly twisting the pronunciation so it came out meaning the Lord of the Flies instead of the Lord of the Dwelling or Prince Baal. And they did that to disparage Satan. And what we see here is they're disparaging the Lord Jesus. 
They're, they're associating him with Satan. They're, they're literally blaspheming him as they're saying, you do not do the work by the hand of God. You are not God, but you are associated with God's enemy, Satan. And as Jesus performs these signs and miracles, they know they just can't deny they're happening. There's power there. Everybody sees that. So what they do is they say the power is not from the Lord in heaven. This is from the Lord of the air, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And so they try denying these things uh, and, and thus blaspheme God. And Jesus' response is twofold. First, he points out how ridiculous it is to say that Satan drives out his own demons. That would be like the general of an army fighting against his own troops. It would diminish his power and his kingdom. And second, he says, let's be consistent here. If you say, I'm doing it based upon the power of Satan, then when, when Jewish guys cast out demons, do these exorcisms, then you have to be consistent and say that it's Satan's power doing the same thing. You see, what happens is uh, Jesus is saying, look, you know there's power here. And, and what you're pointing out is you're admitting that if Satan is powerful, I'm even more powerful than him. And Jesus illustrates this through what we see in verses 21 through 26. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are, are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all that is all takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. But he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of the man, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest and not finding any, it says. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So Jesus pictures Satan as this strong man. He's armored up, he's, he's protecting his house, he's protecting the plunder he's taking, these human captives, but he says along comes Jesus who invades this, this uh, stronghold of his. And he overcomes the enemy and he sets the captives free. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. First John 3, 8 tells us, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15 says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And earlier in Luke chapter 4, you'll recall that as Jesus was reading from the uh, Isaiah chapter 61, he quoted in Luke 4.18, he says, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Satan is this strong foe. I see people in the world who think they have Satan on a leash. And they treat him as some whipping boy. And that's very, very dangerous. The scriptures tell us he is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, as believers, we do not have to fear Satan because we have one who is more powerful than him. First John 4, 4 tells us, Greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. We don't fear our enemy, but we need to be cognizant of who he is. He is a strong enemy, but God is even stronger. And Jesus shows over and over he's able to defeat the enemy. Every time he casts out a demon, he's defeating Satan. Every time he, he does something, he shows that he's more powerful. And the ultimate show of his power came at the cross. When Jesus went and he died on the cross, Satan said, I won. But then he saw after three days, Jesus rose from the dead and he showed he had defeated sin, death, and Satan. 
It was the ultimate victory. It's what Ephesians 4.8 told us. Jesus led captivity captive. And back in Luke 9.31, we talked about what this means to lead captivity captive. And we saw as Jesus rose from the dead and ultimately ascended into heaven, he opened the gates of heaven. He, he, he opened it to Jews and Gentiles who put faith in Christ are able then to come into heaven. So this is the victory. And, and Jesus shares this parable here, and he says, you have to choose which side you're on. He says in Luke eleven twenty three, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. He, he gives an image here, a second picture of, of reaping and sowing. And he contrasts what the laborers in God's field do. Those who are part of God's field, they, they bring in the sheaves to the storehouses. They, they gather the flock into uh, the sheep pen. And, and he says, but those who are on Satan's side will destroy and they will scatter. You see, Satan uses power to corrupt, to control, to manipulate, to destroy. Jesus uses power to heal and to set free. As you think about these two opposing sides, you have to decide which one you're on. Now, friends, if you're sitting here this morning saying, well, you know, I'm kind of neutral. What Jesus tells you is you cannot be neutral. He says, if you think you've chosen neutrality, what you've really chosen is to be on Satan's side. He says, you're either on my side or you're against me. He says, if you've chosen not to receive me, if you've chosen not to acknowledge who I am, then you've literally chosen to reject me. And he tells that through this parable. He illustrates what this danger of trying to be neutral looks like in verses 24 through 26. He pictures your life, your body, as being a house. And he says, if you do not invite Jesus in, what you've done is open yourself up to Satan. He says here there was a man who had a demon in his life and that demon was removed. And he says, that's great. The guy was good for a little while, but things got worse for him. Because after a period of time, the demon returned. And he went and got seven of his, his buddies. And they had a keg party in the house. And he said things were worse than before. We can kind of illustrate what's going on uh, by using this, this vase. And if you think of this vase as being like your life, and, and, and you have stuff in your life that doesn't belong. It can be uh, any, any kind of sin, any kind of trash, any addiction, whatever it is. So you say, I've got, I've got this stuff in my life, and I want to get it out. And so we say, okay, there, I'm better. But he says, your life is still empty. And because it's empty, what you're doing is inviting yourself to have things come back into your life that don't belong. Now, the Bible tells us that when we come to faith in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, it says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so what happens when God seals us is he prevents things from getting in our life. A question I'm asked often is, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? And I always say, no, a, a believer can become oppressed but not possessed. Now, why is that? Well, I already quoted for you First uh, John 4, 4 earlier. And as you look at First John 4, verses 3 through 4, it says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. But you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So what happens is God says he's not going to share you as a a child of his with the, the devil of the world. If God is in you, then Satan can't be in you as well. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells in you? So what God is telling us to do is not just try to get stuff out of our life. It's not about trying to work harder and other things. He tells us if you think in terms of being filled, Jesus says he's the living water. And he says if you were to, to allow your life to be filled with God in his presence. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us, do not quench the spirit of God. It tells us, do not block his filling in our life. And as you're filling your life and overflowing, you see what happens to the stuff that doesn't belong? It gets, it gets brought up and it's easy to remove that from your life. And this is the picture. Sometimes we think if we just do enough good stuff, if we work hard enough, but what God says, that's not going to work. He says, what you do instead is you become a believer. You invite me into your life. You become filled with me. And as you spend time in my word and prayer and fellowship, doing the things that are filling you, it will begin to take over and it will push out the things that do not belong in your life. Instead of bringing in the the rotten stuff of the world, he says, bring in the right stuff. And it begins by receiving Jesus. And as you invite him into your life, there can be no partnership. We cannot be divided God will not share us with our enemy. Now, as all of this is being taught by him, all of a sudden we read in Luke eleven twenty seven. it says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and she said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast by which you nursed. And you're reading this and going, what is going on? I think it was Mother's Day. And, and I think there was a lady in the crowd saying, why are you talking about demons instead of moms this morning? It's a, no. It's an appropriate passage. Sometimes kids act like that. So this is great teaching for us, right? I think it's more along the lines of Luke 9.33. Do you remember in Luke 9.33, we saw that Peter was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as this amazing sight was happening, as Peter just gets so overwhelmed. And and remember Peter? He goes, it's good to be here, God. He didn't know what to say. And I think as this, this woman is hearing Jesus say, I am the promised Messiah. The kingdom has come. I am the one who has defeated and overcome Satan. She doesn't know how to react. She's so excited. She just blurts out whatever comes to her mind. And she's thinking, what an amazing woman Mary was to be able to to say, this is my son. How blessed is this, this, this woman? Now, rather than being drawn off of message, notice that in verse 28, Jesus brings things right back around. Because what he says in verses 28 through 32 is, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And it says as the crowds were increasing, He began to say this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it 
Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, the queen of, of the south is the queen of Sheba. You can read in 1 Kings chapter 10 how this pagan queen who was 1,200 miles away had heard about Solomon and how God had blessed him with wisdom and how God's people, the Jews, were, were prospering. And she said, I'm hearing all these great reports and I want to go and see for myself. I want to go investigate whether all these things that I'm hearing are true. And so she travels 1,200 miles. They didn't have the modern travel conveniences we do. It took her months to get there. And, and, and then she says, this is amazing. Everything I heard was actually underreported. And Jesus then gives a second example. He says, the people of Nineveh are another example. Now, the Ninevites uh, are actually a very wicked, evil people. They would be uh, the, on parallel with the Nazis of our day. If you think of the worst of the worst that have ever been, the Ninevites were, were right there. These were a, a foreign power that didn't just defeat people, but they, they, they made torture and art. They loved coming in and decimating nations. They, they slaughtered babies. They tortured people. They did all kinds of wretched, horrendous things. And, and everybody in that, in that day and age hated the Ninevites, including the Jews. The Jews had been defeated by Nineveh. They were enemies of theirs. And so God, if you've never read the Old Testament book of Jonah, I encourage you to go home this afternoon and read it. It's a short book. It's well worth your time. And in it, what you'll find is that God says there is this wicked nation called the Ninevites. And he says, I'm going to raise up a prophet by the name of Jonah, and I'm sending you, Jonah, to go to Nineveh to tell them you're wicked, judgment is coming, and to turn from your sins and to turn to me as, as the God that you need to worship, not these pagan gods of the world. And so Jonah, hearing this commission, what does he do? Jonah says, I'm not going to do it. And he boards a boat and he heads the exact opposite direction to flee from his assignment. Now, it's not that Jonah was afraid to go there. He wasn't afraid he was going to be killed. It's not that Jonah was afraid they would reject the message. Jonah's fear was actually that they would believe the message and they would respond to the message. And Jonah says, I know that you, God, are a God of mercy and grace. And if they do this, you won't wipe out our enemies like I want. So Jonah decides to take matters into his own hand, and he runs the other direction and says, they're not going to hear the, the word of God. And so what happens is, is this boat is sailing out in the open ocean. God sends a storm to stop the boat. And it's a horrendous storm, so bad that even these pagan sailors who have seen a lot of storms before realize this is something unique. And they begin to panic. They say, we're going down. We're going to die. And they start, you know, calling on their gods. They start casting lots, trying to figure out who or what is causing this. And it points to this guy named Jonah who's asleep down in the bottom of the boat. They go wake him up and they say, why don't you wake up and call upon your God? What's going on? And Jonah goes, well, I know exactly what's going on. And he tells them, I'm running from the God who controls not just the land, but the sea. He's over all things. And they go, are you nuts? You know this God, you know what he can do, and, and you're disobeying him? And they say, what do we need to do to appease him? And he says, well, throw me overboard, just kill me, and that'll make your trouble stop. Now, they don't want to do that, so they start lightening the boat, doing everything they can, but still the storm is, is taking them under. And so finally they listen to Jonah, they, they toss him overboard. Jonah says, I'm just going to go in the water, drown and die, and they'll never hear the message. But God doesn't let Jonah off that way, does he? 
He sends this great fish. Many people call it a whale, but the, the, the Bible just describes it as a great fish. It was this divinely appointed uh, fish that swallows Jonah. And rather than getting to die a quick death, Jonah is in the belly of this great fish for three days. And he's, he's there and he's lamenting and finally he says, okay, okay, God, I'll preach your message. And God says, great, takes him to shore. The fish throws up. Jonah's there alive on the shore. He then gets to travel across land, go to Nineveh. He comes to this city of 120,000. Remember what Jonah does? He preaches the most loveless, turn-or-burn, shake-or-bake, fly-or-fry message you can, you can have, right? He's walking through the streets telling everybody, you're going you're gonna to be you know, destroyed, this and that, and he's hoping that they, they don't listen to him. So then he crawls up to the top of this hill. He overlooks the city, waits for the fireworks. I'm going to skip the part about the worm and everything. You can read Jonah. And, and then the city doesn't get destroyed. And Jonah gets mad and he laments. He says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew these people were going to come to faith. I knew they would turn from their, their sins. And you, being this great God of mercy and grace, would save them. And God goes, really? You're mad that I save a city of 120,000 people because they turned to me. And, and these are wicked pagan, child-sacrificing, nasty, murderous barbarians, and they hear the word of God, and what do they do? They fall on their face in sackcloth and ashes, and they repent. And Jesus says, you're the Jews. You're the people who have had the Old Testament. You know what the prophets have said. You've heard the message, and you've seen miracles done, and your response is to reject me. While these pagan people with so much less than you have come to faith. And he says, when your judgment comes, guess who's going to stand up and say, you deserve it? The Ninevites. This, this foreign queen who traveled to see. You see, Jonah hated the people he preached to. He wanted them to die. But Jesus loves the people he's preaching to. He wants them to have eternal life. Jesus is broken up that these people are rejecting him, not because he's, he's upset personally. He's upset for what is coming for them. He says, it's like when he wept over Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you missed the day of your visitation. And if you're here this morning and you think, Roger, I've, I've made such a mess in my life. I'm so far from God that God would want nothing to do with me. Think of the Ninevites. No matter how bad you have been, no matter what you've done, I doubt you could call yourself to be in their league. And God was a God of mercy and grace, and he forgave them when they turned to him. And as you look at the cross, it reminds us of God's love for you and me, because it says in Romans 5, 8, he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you, and he wants you to come to him. And if you're here today and you've never come to faith in him, Jesus says, turn to me and I will save you. He says, these pagan people will stand and speak as witnesses of you rejecting me. These Jews say, we want a sign. And Jesus goes, really? I just did a sign. I just cast out a demon. And, and you're saying, well, that's not good enough. Show us something else. What? What do you want to see? As you've read through Luke, as we've gone through this series, do you remember the signs and miracles we've seen? 
There was this miraculous conception, a miraculous birth that took place. There were angels that announced the coming of the Messiah. There were prophets and prophetesses in the temple that said, this is the promised Messiah. They've seen uh, people who have been healed of of sicknesses. There have been people who have been brought back from the dead. They've watched Jesus calm storms. He's fed the 5,000. He's freed others from demonic possessions other than this mute man. And he says, yet with all you have seen, you say you need to see more. What about us today? Is there anyone sitting here this morning saying, I need to see a sign? I, I need God to show me he's, he's who he says he is. What more do you need? What more do you need than all the evidence that you've seen already? We not only have all the signs that they saw recorded, but here in the Bible we have so much more recorded for us. We, we have not only what Jesus did. There's, there's One of the Gospels tells us that if all that Jesus said and did had been recorded, all the books of the world could not contain it. He says, you have all these signs, all this evidence. He says, I've, I've revealed to you what's coming in the end times. I've given you a peek into heaven. I've told you what it's going to be like. He says, I'm telling them, you're not going to get any other sign than the sign of Jonah. And they're going, well, we, we know the story of Jonah, but what does that mean? Well, you and I today know what the sign of Jonah is. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was buried in a tomb for three days. And after three days, he came out alive. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He showed us he was who he said he was, the Son of God. We have the proof of the resurrection that they had not yet seen. Now, if you're sitting here saying, but Roger, I need to know. Are you telling me God is afraid to show me things? No, that's not what I said at all. If you look at Luke eleven nine that we passed through last week, there Jesus said, seek and you will find Jesus is not afraid of you looking. He says, look, search the evidence. If you were here on Easter Sunday, you'll recall that we spent our time on Easter in Luke chapter 9 and verses 18 through 26. And and we looked at the evidence there was for the resurrection. If you miss that message or you need a review, go to waysidechapel.org. All of the sermons are there for you to listen to whenever you'd like. And in it, we talked about the evidence of who Jesus was in the resurrection. I pointed out resources you can look at that will help you search and seek. There was a a queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who said, I'm willing to travel 1,200 miles to see if what is being said is true. Have you really done a, a due diligence? Have you really searched? Have you really sought? Jesus says, seek, and you will find. The people in our passage were rejecting Jesus on the pretense they didn't have enough evidence. And yet Jesus says there are Gentile pagans who had less evidence than you and I have today, less evidence than the Jews had. And he says they came to faith. Now God has revealed to us what we need to know who Jesus is. But what are we doing with it? Think about a dimmer switch. Many of you have these in your home, right? There's this dial, and you can turn it to the right, and the light will get brighter. You turn it to the left, and the light goes darker. And you can even push that button and just extinguish the light altogether. And what God says is, I've given you the light of revelation. 
I've, I've revealed to you who I am through my word, through, through natural revelation, as Romans tells us, through all these things. And he says, some of you, rather than turning the dial to the right, exploring, looking, and seeing more and more evidence, you just, you just turn it off or you just hit it and reject it. And he says, you end up in darkness. And that's what was happening with these Jews. Right in front of them, they're seeing these things happen, but they just said, we're just going to reject it. And Jesus says in Luke eleven thirty three through 36, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand so that those who enter in may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body, and when the eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is, when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that this, that this light in you is, is not darkness. He says, If therefore your whole body is full of light, uh, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illumines uh, you with its rays. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that he's given us this revelation. Now, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, you probably recognize some of this because Jesus taught that in a parallel passage. Here he focuses on the negative part. And, and, and what he did in both passages is he said the human eye is like a lamp. Now, it's not that our, lights, our, our, light, our eye lights up and sends out this beam of light. What he says is that it's, it's not the source of light, but instead it's the vehicle through which light enters. And those who, who are optometrists and ophthalmologists, they are those who can tell you how the light works how the eye receives it in and it processes it. You see, it doesn't matter how bright the light is, how bright the sun is. If, if you're blind, then you don't receive it, right? Your brain doesn't receive the signals in a way that can process it. And this is the image he's giving to us here. He says the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he has done has to enter through and, and, and come into our hearts and minds. It's like being filled and he says, it's not enough just to know it. It's not enough just to hear it. He says, you have to receive it. And so what he says is a failure to receive Jesus and what he's teaching here results in spiritual blindness. God's word is a light. It shines in a dark and dying world. But it's not enough for that light to be shining externally if you haven't internalized the truth, if you haven't received Jesus as your Savior. It says, and when we receive this light, we have to let this light shine in our life, helping others to know the Lord and how to live for him. We saw in verse 28 where he said, blessed are those who hear the word and act on it. It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to know it. He says you have to act on it. So as you think in terms of Jesus and the claims of Christ, as Jesus says, I am the Christ, which means the Messiah, the promised one who would leave heaven to come to earth, to go to a cross and pay the penalty of death for your sins and mine. What have you done with what you've heard? Have you gone beyond simply hearing and knowing those things to receiving Jesus as your Savior? Let me sum up what we're talking about with this final illustration. I want you to imagine that you're going to walk out of Wayside today and you're going to go to the airport. The airport's just up the road here, right? You're going to go outside, get in your car, go up 281, and you're going to exit and go to the airport because you want to leave San Antonio and go to another destination. And you know that there are airplanes at the airport that can take you from San Antonio to where you want to go. And you know to get there, you have to have a ticket. 
Now, simply having a ticket is not enough. You have to take that ticket. You have to go through security. You have to go to the gate. You can go to the gate, look out the window, and say, hey, there's my plane. It's already at the gate. Uh, They're going to be boarding in a moment. And you know that if you get on that plane, it's going to taxi down the runway, it's going to take off, and it's going to land at that destination. You have that knowledge. As you're sitting there at the gate, the boarding agent says, okay, we're going to begin boarding. They start having everybody get on the plane. Agent gets on again and says, this is the last call for boarding. If you've not yet boarded the plane, you have to get on the plane. They close the door, the, the plane pushes back, and it begins to taxi. But you never took the step of faith. You never got on the, the gateway, walked in, got in the plane, sat down in your seat, and buckled your seatbelt. Are you going to get to your destination? No. It's not enough to have the knowledge. It's not enough to believe, hey, that plane that I see can get me there if you do not actually act on that knowledge. If you do not walk out and and get on the plane, it will do you no good. This morning you're at the airport. You know this is a place where you can get information that tells you how to get from earth to heaven when God calls you home, when your life on this earth is over. But it's not enough to know things. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. You have to actually act on it. You have to take that step of faith where you receive what he has told you. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. The question this morning is, have you ever taken that step of faith? Have you ever said, God, I believe you're who you said you are. I believe you did what you said. Romans 6.23 warns us, the wages of sin is death. All of us here have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And because of that, we owe a penalty called death. But Jesus goes on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says, the way you receive that, It's through a step of faith where you acknowledge that you're a sinner. That means you've made mistakes in your life, that you haven't been perfect. And because we owe that penalty, Jesus came and he died in our place. He bought the ticket home to heaven for us. But he says it's no good unless you personally receive it and you act on it. So if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to invite you to do so this morning. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But you do have to acknowledge to God that you are a person who's made a mistake. We all have. Whether it's a little lie, taking a cookie out of the pantry, some other sin, we've all sinned. We all owe a penalty called death. And what Jesus says is, I came and I died for you. I gave my life so that you could have the gift of eternal life. But it requires you not just to hear it and know it. It requires you to actually take and receive it. So if you'd like to receive his gift to you, I'm going to invite you to bow your head now and pray this prayer with me. There's nothing magic about the prayer. It's just your way of acknowledging and confessing, receiving the gift of eternal life God has for you. If you'd like to do that, pray this prayer, please. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. Lord, I deserve the penalty of death. Because of my sins. I thank you that you loved me so much. That you came and took my place. Going to the cross to die for me. 
going to the cross to pay that penalty of death that I owed. I thank you, Jesus, that you showed you were who you said you were. The Son of God, as you were buried in a tomb and rose from the dead, death could not hold you. You, Jesus, overcame the grave. You, Jesus, defeated our enemy, Satan. You defeated sin. You, des- you defeated even the power of death, and you gave new life. And today, Jesus, I accept that gift of life, eternal life that comes through placing my faith in you. Thank you for making me a son or daughter of yours. I pray you would help me now to live my life for you. In Jesus' name we pray. You prayed that prayer. There are going to be prayer leaders here at the front. I'll be at the front. I would love to talk to you to make sure you understood that step of faith you just took and to help you to begin to grow in your walk with the Lord. For the rest of us who know the Lord already, he tells us we don't hide our light under a basket, but he says we go out and we proclaim it. So as you leave today, go and share the good news that Jesus is who he said he was, that he came and gave the gift of new and eternal life to help the moms get to their brunches or, or lunches on time. We're not going to close with a closing song this morning. Happy Mother's Day. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.